0: All right, we're going to do it. The scan away. I'm going to suck your brain dry. <laughs> and yes, we are back. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. This is Adario Strange here with Big Song. And this week we have a uh, a bundle of uh, a binder full of news. Haha, uh-huh, Get it? Foreshadowing? Uh-huh. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about sexism in tech this week. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the new season, um, the season premiere of season three uh, of Halt and Catch Fire, and the the travails, the misadventures of the two female founders of Mutiny, and that's on uh, AMC. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about a few news items. We want to talk about the discovery of Proxima B. 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 Yeah, exactly. Um. So this is an Earth-lo- Earth-sized planet that, uh, because of its uh, proximity to its sun and size, it's referred to as being in the Goldilocks uh, habitable zone. Goldilocks meaning not too hot, not too cold, just right. And it's right near the star of Centaurus, and it is 4.2 light years away from us, and it is 1.3 times the mass of Earth. And it was discovered by a team of scientists uh, at Queen Mary University of London School of Physics and Astronomy. And so the discovery, it seems to at at least from the various articles I've read about the discovery, for many, it seems to imply many scientists, it seems to imply that. Uh, the existence of this Earth like habitable, well, habitable zone planet may infer that these kind of worlds are far more common, or planets are far more common than we may have suspected. Instead of there being maybe just a bunch of Pluto's out there that are cold and possibly lifeless, maybe there are, in, in fact, you know, billions, millions and billions of Earth like planets in the habitable zone. You know, especially since there's one so close.
1: Like the implications of that are kind of insane if you really think about it, because this one is when we say 4.2 light years away, that's still really far away. Um, I don't think that they have an actual picture of the planet because it's just we don't have the technology that can see that far yet. And I think um, at least from the articles I've read the calculations and how how they even figured out that Proxima B was a thing, is it's very indirect. It's not uh, a type of thing where they're like, oh, we're looking in this general vicinity and we can clearly see the planet. It was detected through indirect means. And it's in the Goldilocks zone, like you're saying, where it's not too hot, it's not too cold, which means that there can be liquid water. Well, then, that's pretty good logic for there being another planet with life forms at least somewhat similar to us out there in terms of, like, higher consciousness. But at the same time, you know, Mars is kind of in a habitable zone in our solar system. So I don't know if we're kind of just jumping the gun in the initial excitement yet, at least in terms of when we're talking about Proxima B.
0: And, well, to your point about seeing the planet, they're saying that uh, Hubble's, uh, Hubble, the Hubble telescope's successor, Uh, The James Webb uh, Space Telescope, which will launch in 2018, may be able to get a view of the planet or the European – this is a weird name – the European Extremely Large Telescope. (laughs) I hope they rename that. I swear that's the name. The European Extremely Large Telescope uh, may be able to get a view of it. And that's in 2024 that that is set to uh, go into action. One thing that's interesting is um, they're saying how close this is. But the thing is, it's actually so if you take the spacecraft New Horizons, which, um, you know, it passed Pluto and its moons and it gave us like some great images. That journey took nine and a half years. The New Horizons spacecraft was traveling at 36 over 36,000 miles per hour. People have already done the calculations. If you took a spacecraft like New Horizons and you pointed it in the direction of the Alpha Centauri system, it would take roughly seventy-eight thousand years to reach Proxima. Oh, B. I'll be dead. So. <laughs> Yeah. So so at this point, it looks like our best hope is to get one of our telescopes in position to look at Proxima b. And if we do happen to see, you know, some sort of life form, you know, in whatever form it may come, if we do happen to see something in- interesting or some sort of odd, you know, surface growth of any kind you know we may get excited but um in terms of actually visiting that planet that seems uh pretty far away
1: although there is one thing in the sci-fi universe that gives me a little bit of hope what is that so it's 4.2 light years away right if you move the decimal point we're gonna put our tinfoil hats on now if you move the decimal Uh point that's 42 and 42 Is the answer to the universe according to Douglas Adams? So.
0: Oh my God! Yeah, you've just blown my mind. I think I need a drink now. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good.
1: Hitchhike to another uh, star system.
0: Speaking of uh, hitchhiking to the stars. We also noticed um, this is not so much a news item as kind of like a social media uh, occurrence. So there's a popular Twitter account called Science Porn, at Science Porn. <laughs> they have, I think, something like one point some odd million users or followers. They posted a joke, and the reaction to the joke was pretty interesting. So here's a joke. First... Should we role play this or do you, should I just do the whole thing? You
1: know, I kind of want to hear a uh, female Adario. So. Okay. All right. So. Okay. So let's, let's do that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So the joke is called the first woman on the moon. So, and I will play the role of the woman. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Was that too good? Was Did I do that? Did I do too good you of a did, job?
1: You, that's amazing. <laughs> um, I want to know where you learned how to do that. <laughs> And I'm just so glad This is the best idea I've had all night So, uh, continue
0: (laughs) Okay, so here's the joke So first woman on the moon Houston, we have a problem What? Uh, Never mind What's the problem? Nothing Please tell us I'm fine And that's a joke all right, so did I did I kind of do that right? Like the kind of stereotypical kind well, of if you wanted to get Oh my like, god, Kardashian.
1: Like if <laughs> you wanted to be super stereotypical, it would've been like Houston, we have a problem.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to vamp it up like kind yeah, of Marilyn you know, Monroe, it's, it's, like, it's a little old school. But,
1: you know, like the whole passive aggressiveness that gets assigned to women is the butt of the joke here.
0: Basically, yeah. I, I should have did my uh, my Kardashian impression. But anyway, so the immediate reaction to this um, post, this Twitter post, which was earlier this week, was basically calling it a sexist joke. And none other than Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, the space expert of, of great note, uh, host of Cosmos on Fox. And he has, also has uh, his um, he has a podcast and a radio show called Star Talk. Um, where he talks about science and space. He he actually went in and um, responded to the tweet. In, so in the tweet's uh, comments on science porn, you can actually, let's see, to, so if you want to look this up, it's on science porn, at science porn, on August 24th. And after the joke was posted, a bunch of people weighed in, and then Neil deGrasse Tyson weighed in, and he actually at mentioned science porn, and these are all directed directly to Science porn. Ha ha. This is from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ha ha. It's funny because women did all the calculations that actually got men to the moon. Reference Boom.
1: To hidden figures.
0: There you go. Which we talked about last week. Then he comes. Then there's, a, there's another tweet. It's funny because any show of potential weakness by a woman is savagely pounced on and used against her. Boom. Then he comes again. I mean, he, this is like he does a tweet storm again. Uh, it's funny because for 20 years, women were rejected out of hand as astronaut candidates. Boom. Then he comes again. It's funny because women in STEM are mocked and abused. Sexual harassment is, is rife in astronomy grad programs, for example. Boom. Again, it's funny. This is still Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's funny because the pursuit of science and knowledge is the greatest, most noble pursuit in human history. And yet, for the vast majority of history, half of our species, half of the half of our species minds have been barred from this great adventure. In summary, haha. And he basically owned science porn and people love Neil deGrasse Tyson even more now.
1: Basically. I mean, dude, let loose. Like it obviously touched a nerve with him. And, you know, judging by the responses that that particular tweet got, it touched a nerve with a lot of people. And, you know, when I first read it, it was pretty much like, oh, because you think that women on a really important and real expensive science mission – would just be passive aggressive about there being a problem and potentially ruin everything. Right.
0: And yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'm sure that, you know what I, I the, the main thing I hate doing that uh, impression or whatever is that there, are, I know deep voiced women who don't sound like that. <laughs> and right now they're listening and they're just like, it's not what all women sound like. Shut up. Um, anyway. So yeah. So that was kind of like a cool smackdown of uh, science porn's uh, Twitter account joke. You know, they don't seem to ruffle feathers that often. And so I kind of wonder if this is just maybe kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, like an artifact of kind of that old, you know, science bro thinking, you know. Or it
1: could just be an instance where I don't know the gender of the person who wrote that joke, although I'm hard pressed to believe that it's a woman. Uh, you know, right. it could be going through some life problems with a honey. Or a significant other and trying to put a little bit of life into that because, you know, um, I'm not saying that all stereotypes are true, but we've all had situations where, you know, passive aggressiveness happens. It's just that it gets attributed way more to women in all facets of life instead of like, you know, I've met a number of men who have done that to me as well. Like, why does he have to point out that it's a female astronaut on the moon. It's, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a lazy
0: joke. Well, yeah. And for me, the thing that jumped out to me was kind of this idea of women being, uh, I guess too emotional to participate in, I guess, military, you know, uh, perilous science missions, because the way I read the whole, the, the joke was that, you know, basically this astronaut is on the moon and there's some problem and Apparently, I guess there's some emotional component, and this person is going through their feelings, even though we have a mission, you know, on the line. And I don't know, like, I mean, in, like, it's really an antiquated joke. Uh, I mean, if you know anything about, you know, what women do, I mean, women are pretty strong. I mean, well, like, like,
1: if you were the first female astronaut in the moon, you would have to be like badass on the level of Ripley to be N three. Right. That exactly, trick yeah. is not gonna, you know, get all the way to the moon, find out that there's a right. problem and then be pissy about it.
0: So right. Suddenly. Well, that's why I did the voice in kind of like a, a woman from Mad Men <laughs> uh, kind of style, because I, I feel like that's what they were trying to do. Like, because, I, again, I can't even imagine Ripley uh, again, for those who don't know Ripley from Aliens, uh, Sigourney Weaver as Ripley. I can't imagine Ripley sounding like that, giving those responses. It just I don't know.
1: Ripley would be like, Houston, we have a problem. And they'd be like, what? And he's like, I'm about to tell you what the problem is. Tell me how to there you fix go. it. Like, that would be Rippling. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. So, I mean, I'm just glad Neil deGrasse Tyson is there. I mean, you know, let's be honest. He calls BS a little too often lately, and not so much on issues of culture and sexism and that kind of stuff, more so on science. Like, we don't really need you to chime in on every single You know, depiction of science?
1: He's like PolitiFact for science.
0: Yeah, just, I mean, you know, dude, you know. I mean, this was a good one, so that's why we highlighted it. But, I mean, yeah, I could use a little less, um, well, actually... That's
1: sucking the fun out of all sci-fi. We know it's not 100% accurate.
0: Right, right. So, uh, moving on, um, there was another, um, protest in China. This time, not about, uh factory conditions at the iPhone factory or uh, other, you know, uh, political issues regarding the government. This had to do with cinematic technology. So Jason Bourne, the latest Jason Bourne film, uh, was released in China this week. Basically, most of the screenings were in 3D. Uh, But the problem is that Jason Bourne wasn't shot with 3D in mind. So the studio had to convert the film to 3D into 3D. And as we all know, the Jason Bourne films rely heavily on this kind of shaky cam effect and kind of like, you know, this this film approach that kind of makes you feel that you're almost there, like you're almost kind of like with Jason Bourne. And apparently this doesn't work very well with 3D. But the problem with that is uh, they converted it. And in the in China, Only eight of 149 theaters in Beijing had a 2D version. So basically, you know, you had to watch it in Beijing in 3D. And in Shanghai, pretty much the same. Only nine of the 174 theaters showing Jason Bourne offered 2D. So basically, 3D was all you could get. In most cases. And as we all know, they charge more for 3D showing screenings. So that benefits the studio. But what happened was they, it was just unwatchable. And so they, you know, uh, viewers in China, I'm really impressed. They took, you know, a very odd and, and unusual stance of mounting a protest in Beijing.
1: You know, I feel like we should be doing this more in the States too. Well, I guess it's less of a problem here, but if You have no choice between 3D and 2D. I just hate how like the format wars are being shoved down our throats in a, in a kind of ham fisted way. Because, you know, what it really reminded me of is kind of those virtual reality headsets and how some people report getting motion sickness from that. Because I'm one of the people who have gone into a 3D like movie and come out sick from it and I prefer not to see it in 3D if at all if it wasn't filmed natively in 3D. You have to be a detective. You have to go on Google or any search engine that you use and you have to kind of figure out and I mean there there are websites that list which films are filmed in real 3D and which films are fake quote unquote, 3D, but you kind of have to be a detective and really think about, like, it's just, it's so much work to, to see the format that would be most preferable to you. So I can just imagine being in Beijing, wanting to see a 2D version, having no choice but to pay a more expensive 3D version, then get sick in the middle of the movie. Like, I would just be furious.
0: This is really just a money grab. This has been going on for, I don't know, I feel like since I got back to the States, uh, I remember when I first came back to the States in 2012, it seemed like it was only kind of for the really big blockbuster movies. And even then, it was kind of just an option. And then I feel like around 2013, 2014, I, I, increasingly, I'd go to the theater and it was just all 3D. And they the only option for 2D, and look, they know what they're doing. They would have one 2D option and it would be 9 a.m., you know yeah. one showing for the entire day <laughs> like you know come on you know so at that point you realize what they're doing so anyway so in response to the protests uh in Beijing uh Universal's Beijing office uh issued a statement uh on Weibo the social media channel the most pop- one of the most popular social media channels in China and they said they are working with local distributors to arrange more 2D screenings to serve the audience's quote diversified movie going needs. And this is according to the Hollywood reporter. You know, this is like diversified movie going needs. So, so now what basically what they're saying is 3d is how you should just watch all movies. And if you want a 2d movie, you have diversified uh, movie going needs. You, you have like some special,
1: I, you know, like we're kind of moving towards more immersive storytelling and more immersive, um, you know, movie going experiences. But I would just like it if they could stop on some level. Because it it might sound a little cinematic Luddite of me, but uh, did you go see the Hobbit series uh, when it was in theaters?
0: Oh, yeah. The the, the last one. Yeah, the last
1: couple of films. And like Peter Jackson. Horrible. Um, Well, (laughs) the quality of the film and the cinematic storytelling and the whatever aside... Actually figuring out which showing I wanted to see was a nightmare. I felt like I needed a spreadsheet or whatnot because because he had filmed it in, um, he filmed like two bazillion different, he filmed one in a 48 frame rates per second. Uh, version and then the regular industry standard is 24 frame rates and then there was 3D, non-3D, IMAX with the 24 regular standard frame rate and then 3D with the higher frame rate, 2D with the lower oh frame rate, 2D with the higher Feel frame, me. frame rate. And I was like, Jesus! <laughs> so, you needed like an algorithm or a excel spreadsheet just <laughs> to figure out which movie you were going to see and
0: right right you
1: know maybe this is why people are going to the theaters less because it's like you have to do math just to figure out when you're going to go see something
0: yeah and and i so it's kind of like this weird mobius strip because i do agree with you i think it's making people go to the theater less And then at the same time, the studios are trying to respond to fewer moviegoers by pumping up the prices on these 3D showings. And then that makes less people go. And so it's kind of like this is stripped, you know, this kind of like cycle that kind of goes on and on. I I hope I don't think it'll happen, but I hope the studios pay attention to this protest in China because it, it indicates, you know, I think a broader public sentiment that. 3D is for events. It's not something that is that should be the standard. I've seen more than my fair share of 3D films at this point, and I'm good. I I, I saw – I remember when Avatar, James mm-hmm. Cameron's, Cameron's uh, Avatar, came out, and that was definitely the best 3D movie-going experience I've had. It was beautiful. It was amazing. But frankly, you know, even as amazing as that was, I'm good.
1: And it's really taxing on your eyes because I got – A major headache when I was watching uh, Avatar and you know it was beautiful and everything but it was it was so headache inducing and then you know uh, for the skeptics out there who are just like well there isn't really a difference between 2d that's been converted in post-production and a film that's been filmed with 3d cameras there is a huge difference if you go, um, the one movie that I particularly remember is the Alice in Wonderland.
0: Oh, I saw that too. Yeah. yeah. If you yeah. Went <laughs> in and 3D. If you went and yeah. saw that
1: in 3D, the colors were awful. They were just so dark. You couldn't yeah. see anything. And just the whole world inventive building that, you know, Tim Burton's art style, which is very distinctive. It was just completely washed out and ugly and flat. And it was just like, oh. Yeah, you should really only watch 3D movies that were meant to be 3D.
0: Yeah, and speaking of films and cinematic experiences that aren't what they appear to be, we're going to talk about the trailer for Operation Avalanche. Basically, this is the story of a couple of CIA agents. Their mission is to infiltrate NASA and try to basically uncover Russian moles, Russian spies, uh, hiding in NASA's space program. And instead, what they find out is that NASA is engaged. Uh, well, f- this is based on what the trailer appears to be giving. Uh, they basically discover that NASA is engaged in a plan to fake the moon landing. And basically, what we learn is that, um, they do think they can do, they can land on the moon, just not by 1969. And so, and Kubrick is, by the way, mentioned, which makes me think this calls back to a couple of episodes on the Mars podcast where we talked about, um, uh, Stanley Kubrick's daughter.
1: Oh, she must be
0: thrilled about this film. Well, yeah. Now I'm thinking maybe this is what inspired. She didn't mention the film in her tweet that we mentioned, right. uh, you know, back then, but maybe she was actually, maybe this is what inspired her, her her mini rant, her mini tweet storm. You know, yeah, the film mentions Kubrick, and it kind of, like, gives, I think, uh, a funny but somewhat, I don't know, plausible scenario for Faking the Moon Landing.
1: Yeah, well, like, when you're watching the trailer, I think, like, in terms of conspiracy theory, what stood out most to me was that they really just, like, ticked off all the tinfoil hat check boxes you know they had the they had the dude putting the footprint the whole waving the flag even though there should be no air and wind on the moon the the and just like a nice retro callback to the guy who's leaning over a particular film cell painting in certain things it's an interesting thing that it's a found footage film
0: they actually got on to the nasa facility like the actual like some of the film was filmed at nasa But without permission, apparently they told NASA that they were students shooting a documentary film, and then they surreptitiously filmed parts of their movie on NASA's actual facility. And so and they've admitted this. This is not like some rumor like they've openly admitted this. I don't know if anyone's ever actually gotten like a list of like films that were or weren't shot on uh, NASA's actual facilities. But um, some are saying that this might be the first film that we've seen fictional film that was shot at NASA um, under false pretenses. I wonder how
1: NASA feels about that. Probably not terribly happy.
0: Well, particularly given the the way the plot goes. So this is coming out on September sixteenth, very soon. But again, it's an indie film, but it's something to look out for. At, you know, at wherever you guys check out your indie fair. Next, we want to talk about the season premiere of Halt and Catch Fire. You said it's fun to play with other people, but the game itself you know, its nowhere near as good as what Atari's been pumping I out. I think if your nephew understood coding a little better, he'd think Parallax was pretty cool. <laughs> look, cartridge games may look better for a while, but online gaming is the future. Only if there's a profitable way to sustain it. That's exactly right. And that's why we're here. Our network is overloaded, limiting our ability to sign up new subscribers. How do you even know they're out there? Only ten percent of Americans have computers. Only fifteen percent of them have modems, not to mention the fact <laughs> that you're only on Commodores. I mean, how do you really know that there are enough users out there to make us all a killing? We just do yeah. look, Mr Bondom. If we had the capital to buy seven, fifty. Thirty-five
1: grand a pop, thirty two, thirty two
0: plus additional funding to cover operations through the end of the fiscal year, then what I. About kids excuse me do you have or want kids no i have two what does that have to do with it well when i invest in a company i don't just bet on an idea i bet on the people success is no sunday drive it's not another to do tack to the fridge if you two as you claim are really going to run this business i need to know that you're fully committed long term even over you know biological imperatives. Sorry, are you
1: going to give us the money or not?
0: One thing, I've been a fan of this show since it first came out. So I've been following since season one. But I've noticed like a lot of people who I think might like this kind of show, uh, they don't know about it. And so just to give you a brief primer, Halt and Catch Fire is basically Mad Men meets Mr. Robot, sort of. So it's basically Mad Men for the tech industry. And it kind of like shows us a fictional startup as it's moving through the 80s. But it puts many things that actually happened in the 80s around this fictional company to kind of give you the proper context for how all this stuff is happening. And so um, in season three, we are brought back to uh, Mutiny, which is the startup founded by two women. One, I, I would say she's more focused on hardware. The other one is more focused on uh, software. And there are other there are a couple of men, you know, one's a former lover, one's the husband. They're kind of involved. And I believe this came out, the first uh, season came out right as Mad Men was ending. And I think AMC, which is the network Halt and Catch Fire is on, I feel like AMC was hoping mm-hmm. that this might be the popular, hopefully popular, follow-up to Mad Men, particularly because it's a period
1: piece. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really great that you mentioned that this is kind of the love child of Mad Men and uh, Mr. Robot, because when I was watching the like when I was watching an episode or two, I was just like, this this show feels so familiar, but I really can't put my thumb on it. Why? And then it it, it is very much like the character. Uh, personal dramas of Mad Men with the overarching tech culture and conspiracy... Th- well, I don't know about conspiracy theories, but...
0: There's a little bit of that, but not too much. like
1: corporate espionage a little bit. Yeah, more... Yeah, there uh, you go. Like yeah, that kind of bigger picture feel and especially with, like, the, the coding scenes of Mr. Robot. So, given the success of Mr. Robot and Mad Men... It's really surprising to me how many people don't actually know this show because it's not like AMC is. I mean, AMC is still kind of a boutique channel. Not everyone gets it.
0: Ooh, burn! Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to pass your comments along to the fine executives. Don't at AMC. hate me,
1: AMC, but <laughs> I mean, they've got a bunch of hit shows. They've got, they've had, they've had Mad Men. They've had, um, or they still have, rather, The Walking Dead. But. Other than, oh, and Breaking Bad. Those were all great shows from them. So it's a little surprising because I feel Halt and Catch Fire is on the same quality of all these shows. But for some reason has a much lower profile.
0: Yeah. And so uh, season one was led in terms of the cast uh, by a character, Joe McMillan, which is, I would say he's kind of like this weird amalgam of Steve Jobs meets Larry Ellison, maybe. And he's played by uh, Lee Pace. And his, I guess, maybe uh, Steve Wozniak to his Joe McMillan is a character named Gordon Clark. And that's played by the awesome Scoot McNary. Uh, McNary? McNary? I always forget how to pronounce that. Um, And then the two founders, the two female founders of the startup are Carrie Bichet Uh, As Donna Clark, uh, the husband of uh, Scoot. The wife of Scoot. uh, The (laughs) wife of Scoot. um, And uh, Mackenzie Davis, who is Cameron Ho. And she's the software genius um, who's... A little punk rock, a little eccentric, kind of cool. She's the
1: the Rami Malek Elliot of the show.
0: I could see totally see like a, a, a offshoot featuring her, kind of at the center. You know, so for those who aren't caught up with season one, season two spoilers, you know, we're gonna get a little into it. I know that. So I know you're kind of new to this I'm series, definitely right?
1: Newer to the series than you are. Um, it's because it just flies under the radar. Yeah. Uh, long story short. I am much newer to the show.
0: Yeah, and just so to give people who are new to the show or need kind of like an overview of what's really going on, I'll encapsulate it like this. Season one was basically the story of the first PC clones, and it was really great because they show our little crew, our little cast at CES, and they show the debut of the first Mac Uh, in this hotel room. And if you've, I've been to CES. I think you've been too, right? I've been to CES. Yeah. So if you've been to CES, you know, as tech reporters, if you've been to CES, you know that a lot of, uh, very interesting presentations, (laughs) you know, uh, new products happen in hotel rooms. Like, you know, these companies rent out entire hotels or entire floors and, you have to go from room to room to room and the doors are usually all open and you'll just walk into this hotel room and it'll be tricked out with whatever audio gear, computer gear. And so they kind of showed that in season one. And that was kind of like this end note where it was like the cast, the the crew, you know, our, our, you know, our characters that we're following, they were working on a competitor and they showed the first Mac speaking, uh, you know, using the vocal, you know, where text to vocal uh, function and it just blew blew them away, and they thought, okay, well we're screwed. So that was that was season one. Season two, I would say, is more like it was a story of um, chat room communities and gaming, online gaming, and that's kind of where mutiny really gets its start. And uh, Cameron uh, Ho is really the leader, and then uh, Donna Clark joins her a little bit later. And we kind of see the ups and downs between, you know, the relationships and life. And so at the end of season two, they decide, okay, this, by the way, this is all based in Texas at first. And at the end of season two, they decide, okay, well, it looks like it's time for us to kind of change things up. You know, um, Texas may not be the best place for us. It seems like there's a little heat going on in Silicon Valley. Uh, let's go to San Francisco, let's go to Silicon Valley, and the entire company moves there. And so that's where we're at now. The entire cast and crew, at least in the show's world, is in Silicon Valley. And I would say, based on the first two episodes, they released uh, part one and part two, I would say this looks like this is kind of the story of, I guess, eBay on some level, yeah. early eBay, eBay, or and, uh, and actually, then... I think. Right, antivirus software. What was, so Okay, so you are a little bit conversant in season one. I don't think you checked out season two, but I know you watched um, the premiere.
1: Well, the, the striking thing about it is how much it gets right in terms of just the tech industry and, like, startup culture. Because they lampoon it all the time if you're watching, like, SNL or if you're watching – you know even Aaron Sorkins, the social network, or just the the ridiculousness of S- Silicon Valley and just what the long hours the the i don't want to say bong smoking but the the drinking <laughs> and and just kind of the the work hard play hardness of it that really came through, but also they didn't skimp on on the hardware which was which was really cool because if you're watching season one and the premiere they have to figure, they have to basically reverse engineer an IBM uh, PC and they actually take it apart and you get to look at the motherboards and you get to look at the chips and the crazy things that they would have to do to figure out how to reverse engineer it. And they've got like this oscillator and they they have to manually record like the software so that they can print it out on a, on a computer. And it just, you know, you get a really great appreciation for the the magic, the mathematical magic that goes into the machines that we use to communicate with each other. And then the other thing about Halt and Catch Fire that's really kind of... Um, it, really, it really is Mr. Robot's sister show, because they just pepper in all these things. And, and it's so interesting because this is being written in the now, so we know where the story ends and where the story goes in terms of where we are technologically as a society. And they just... They just pepper that in, in terms of like uh, privacy when you and I are talking. are Is it just you and I talking? Right. You know, Mr. Robot is all about that. So it's it's just real life back then and just kind of seeding it through and how it came to be. It's like writing an origin story, which is really kind of cool.
0: Well, yeah, I want to talk about the privacy thing, too. But before I get too deep into that, I just want to point out, you know, if you are a fan of Mr. Robot, this was around before Mr. Robot. This is, this predates Mr. Robot. And there were some questions as to whether or not Halton Catch Fire would be renewed. You know, if you've never heard of the show, look, AMC knows that because the viewership is not through the roof, even though it has high ratings on, uh, IMDb and that kind of thing. You know, the people who know it love it, but not a lot of people know it. So it's a minor miracle that this is still around. And to your point, Vic, about Kind of we know where it's going. That's kind of one thing that I'm kind of fascinated by. It's like, okay, so we're at season season three and we're past the debut of the Mac and we're now moving into, I guess, you know, online security, you know, digital swap meets, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think this can only go but so far until you reach kind of, I don't know, web... Well, I guess they could take it... Conceivably, they could take it all the way up to web 2.0, right? I mean, they could,
1: but it... You know, I think the show starts at 1983 and now is somewhere around, like, 1987. So that's not too long ago. So there's not too much more that they can really dig into in terms of, like, beats, I guess.
0: I mean, we haven't really seen the true internet emerge on the show. So I guess that could be... And I guess, I mean, if I'm a showrunner, if I'm, you know, part of the cast, one of the writers, I I guess that might be exciting. Just the notion of, okay, if we get renewed for another two or three seasons, that means, yes, we can do the Internet. And that is kind of exciting because even though the Internet is old hat to some of us, you know, super geeks, you know, the early history of the Internet and and the Web, two different things. Uh, it's pretty mysterious to a lot of people. And a lot of people, you know, on some level don't care. You know, just give me my iPhone. Let me text. You know, I don't really care. But this is what, what I love about Halt and Catch Fire is it makes you care. It understand, it helps you understand that like the early tech industry wasn't just code and hardware. It was driven by personalities, people. And I'm just, I'm in love with this show just because this, I, I feel like it's covering uh, an undercover it's dramatizing an undercover period much in the same way um, much like the get down is covering early hip hop I feel like that's undercovered although there are these epic tales same thing for Halt and Catch Fire it's like you know okay we all talk about how Steve Jobs and Wozniak are these fascinating figures but all we get is a couple of films, you know? How about a series that dramatizes this early history? The premiere, season three premiere. Look, I can't get enough of Ryan. He Ryan the uh the disgruntled coder. Oh
1: man, he is he is such an interesting character because there are layers to him that I don't think we've really seen from a period drama, especially Like It's kind of weird calling Halt and Catch Fire a period drama because the 80s weren't that long ago. And uh, conceivably, if it goes for a couple more seasons, they'll be in the 90s, which really wasn't all that long ago. But he is a – I believe he's Indian?
0: Well, that's not clear. But before we go on, just real quick. So Ryan is a new character on the show. And he is basically the guy who comes to the two founders of Mutiny. And he tells them, hey, there's a back door. In your system that allows people to hack into the private chats of other users and they kind of dismiss him and kind of like brush him off. And instead of kind of taking him seriously and saying, oh, great idea, let's work on that. They brush him off. And then later they kind of realize, "Okay, that was a smart suggestion and they just give him a a pay raise. But they don't really acknowledge, you know, what we learn later is Ryan doesn't really care about money like many brilliant people he just cares about his ideas being taken uh seriously and so yeah so they just brush him off but uh later uh Cameron uh uses the back door exploit to peek in on someone she's about to trade with and i think it's like an atari game system maybe like controllers yeah, like it, it looked like some sort of atari yeah. thing and so she meets him in real in the real world and everything's going fine until she accidentally lets slip a detail that he hadn't really shared in public only in private chats and then she's busted and it was this amazing instance of showing kind of like what the earliest just kind of situation would have been like when you maybe have hacked someone or you kind of stalked someone and kind of dealt you know dug into their information without their knowledge and you meet them in meat space yeah. and you let it, it slip it
1: reminds me of facebook because um you know if you you know, not the Aaron Sorkin version of Facebook. If you kind of dig back into uh, Facebook's early history and you just read some of the transcripts that got released of Mark Zuckerberg, you know, early Mark Zuckerberg, where they're...
0: Yeah, I can't forget those transcripts. You know, like, that's like my my opinion of him, I have to be honest, is formed based on those transcripts. I have to yeah, be
1: and for those of you out there who don't know what we're talking about, these transcripts is basically a young Mark Zuckerberg when... Facebook was a nascent budding budding thing. Is just saying like you know what do we care about these people's photos? What do we care? We own all of it.
0: Yeah, they're idiots. The users an idiot. Yeah, the users
1: an idiot. This is like all the information at our fingertips type feeling. And in the very same way, Cameron and Donna's use of reading these incredibly private these private conversations and just seeing what everyone's doing in these information gathering, it really just it was such a metaphor for Facebook and how you know Facebook. I think recently you can find if you go into your settings on Facebook and you look at the ad, uh, the targeted ad things, they, you know, they troll everything you write to find out what your political affiliation is. It's insane.
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw that story. That that kind of freaked me out because I just thought, you know, I use Facebook very sparingly. Oh, by the way, there is a Mars Magazine Facebook page. Please visit. It's uh, I think the, the address is Mars Podcast. So if you're on Facebook, go check it out. Uh, we're active there, but on a personal level, I'm not that active. And it's mainly because of what you just mentioned is, you know, I don't want Zuckerberg and his minions basically knowing everyone I know, digging through, you know, kind of my personality quirks or, you know, my interests, although they're all above board and completely clean <laughs> and enough that I'd be able to be, uh, I'd ru- I can run for president, no problem. However, I just don't, you know, that's my business. I don't want them, you know, that deeply Going on a rant, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) getting back to Halton Catch catch Fire, Ryan was ignored, our good friend Ryan, the new character. And so what happens is, and spoilers for the season premiere of Halton Catch Fire, if you have not seen it, yeah, he goes to the enemy. He he goes to Lee Pace, Joe McMillan, who, you know, he had kind of, he was intertwined with uh, Gordon Clark. And they kind of had a falling out. They had like a, a sort of Steve Jobs, uh, wa- yeah. uh, Steve Wozniak situation going on. And, um, Joe McMillan was basically Steve Jobs, the hustler, the salesman. Brilliant, though. And, um, so Ryan, frustrated with the goings on, you know, being ignored at Mutiny, goes over to, uh, the enemy, Joe McMillan, and offers his services. And, um, He's, you know, later taken up on, you know, the, uh, Joe takes him up on the offer. And um, now we have intrigue.
1: It, it really just that scene where Ryan is talking with uh, Donna and Cameron, you have uh, a person of color and two female entrepreneurs in a room together. Like talking and just the way that dynamic plays out was just beautiful to watch. And you know, I don't see that a whole lot on TV these days.
0: Yeah. The, um, Ryan is played by Manish Dayal. So I don't know his background, but that, that sounds like an Indian name. I don't, you know, I'm not really that conversant with Indian names. So you know, correct me if I'm wrong out there, but, uh, that's, that's the actor's name, Manish Dayal. First of all, it made me wonder. Okay. So I know this is all fiction, but. Were there, was there ever like a significant startup in Silicon Valley with two female founders? I feel like we, mm. maybe we dropped the ball on mm-hmm. our research, our little research department of two. Um, we, we should probably go look into that maybe for the next episode. But yeah, I, I felt like maybe it was kind of showing us, and again, if I'm wrong, please correct me out there, but I, I felt like they were showing us something that could have been, and if it was, if, if there was a significant two female founder started a tech company. It wasn't profiled like, well, you know, like, I mean, it was kind of lost in, in the history. We don't know
1: about them for one, like we know about Microsoft. We know about uh, Apple. We know about, you know, a couple of other ones that are now obsolete, but um, in the first episode of the season, I forget the character's name, but he's singing and he's singing karaoke as he's trying to forestall a, a launch event and he.
0: Oh, uh, actor Toby Huss playing John Bosworth. Yeah. He used to be a big shot back in Dallas. And uh, he had a couple of uh, rough patches. And now he's kind of basically a manager at Mutiny. He's basically, I think he's the oldest person at Mutiny. But he used to be a big shot back in Texas, in the Texas uh, tech industry. And that's John Bosworth played by Toby Huss.
1: Yeah, so Bosworth is, you know, stalling for time. Which, you know, if you go back into the early days of tech and listen to certain stories, like, this was a thing that they did sometimes when, you know, the technology was not cooperating. Um, but he he makes this offhand comment. It was like, yeah, it's nice to see some girls around here. And he's working at a company that's founded by two women. So it's, it's a thing, the lack of women or the lack of visible right. women in tech.
0: Let's go back to the 80s. I feel like there were too many Star Wars jokes. Um, like, a little too much. Oh, like, and, uh, and, what was it? Enderall or whatever? What the hell is the name of the Alderaan? planet? Alderon. Alderon. <laughs> <Ender-on>. Adderall. <laughs> Enron. <laughs> End- i
1: of Ender's game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just too many Star Wars jokes. Uh, at one point, um, John Bosworth says something about, uh, jedis or the force do you remember he said something about star wars and i'm just like okay Star Wars. in the
1: in the first season and uh you know in in the last two episodes especially but also it it just seems like for filmmakers they're like what was a really big movie in the 80s star wars (laughs) how do we let the the audience know that we're in the 80s let's throw a star wars joke in there like Strangers Things yeah. Stranger Things did it with uh, Eleven and her uh levitating the Millennium Falcon, also with them uh with the Lando joke. So
0: Yeah. Well but I mean that was limited and it was kind of like a bunch of kids. I mean these are adults. I mean I
1: Are you, are you sure it's just not your, your bitterness and your hate flowing through you? <laughs> as Trekkie? Are you sure it's just not that I mean,
0: the, yeah, let the hate let the dark side hate flow through me, maybe. Um So there's another part of the two part, uh, premiere of the show that I think bears, uh, discussion, which is VCs, venture capitalists and, um, women, women, you know, female founders trying to get startup capital. And so we see, you know, apparently they're making the rounds around Silicon Valley to try to get funding and they go to one particular, uh, VC where they get some traction. And things go well. They lay out their vision and they kind of go back to the office. And I think a day or two later, they get the call and it's good news. Let's, you know, we're interested. Let's do this. I think they were looking for like one point something million dollars. So they do a follow up dinner meeting and it's the VC, the head of the VC uh, firm. And I guess, you know, one of his subordinates and they're halfway. Well, not even halfway. They're kind of like beginning the dinner. And it turns out, um, looks like the, the, the VC guy wants a little sex. (laughs) Like, I mean, they're there. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, Cameron and Donna are sitting there talking about terms and capital and strategic, you know, fit and all this stuff. And the guy's just sitting there like, well, let's just see how the night goes. You know, let's just see, let's see what happens. I'll be honest. It took me off guard. And one thing that was, uh, pr- particularly, you know, stood out about the scene, uh, at the dinner table was that, um, the VC head goes off, I think, to the restroom or something like that. Or there's some, there's some they they separate briefly and the subordinate, the one who got the founders in the door talks to them and he says, well, you know, What would you expect? You know, you know, who comes to a dinner wearing red lipstick if they're not ready for some, you know, some hanky or whatever? I mean, yeah. No one
1: wears that shade of lipstick if they're if they're not coming to play. It's like, oh no,
0: you're <laughs> coming to play. Yeah. So so yeah, so warning certain shades of, of lipstick uh, are are signaling, I guess, triggers. It's okay. <laughs> you know, sexist triggers. So, I mean it kind
1: of like when when the guy before he goes off to wherever he it is that he went, before he's like the sexy times, yay. Um there was just so much about that dinner that I was just watching that scene and just like I could feel The, the, the skin on my neck and the hairs on my neck just crawling, just like, ugh. Because, you know, these are two women who have come in and up until this point have been extremely professional. They've, they've got all their ducks in a row. They have a detailed plan. Uh, I think when they're initially pitching him in the office, She's like, you know, on page twenty five, you'll see this. On page twenty six, you'll see that. Our numbers are there, and just the power dynamic of him saying, "Well, I want you to say that number out loud." Or when they finally get to the dinner and they say, and he says things like, "Uh, you know, uh, we can't do the one point four, but let's just let me just pour you this champagne." And you know, at at this point, they're very clear. They're very um, both Donna and Cameron are very clear sighted, and they're like, "Well, let's." can we get a figure like if you can't pay 1.4 what can you do and he just keeps brushing her off and just like the ways that they try and con- he tries to control the situation by either gaslighting them or just maneuvering them into a, a situation where he doesn't give any answers or and like one great example of this is he says stuff like well you know i I don't think you actually need the 1.4 number because you could you could cut the hires that you want in half and you can have them do more with this and I, I forget which one of them cuts them off, but they're they're saying, so you basically want us to do it cheaper. They're like, no, that's not what we're saying at all. Stop twisting our words. That whole experience is just like the female business experience in a nutshell. And that's not even getting to the to the big slap in the face, which was the whole um uh the 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 comments about what would you what did you think? You were calling our office for uh every day for two weeks. Like who does that? You wear the lipstick to the thing. It was just a whole you think you're being taken seriously, but you're really not. And the only reason is your gender.
0: Well, you know, so I don't know. So I, I'm I'm divided on this because When So when the whole thing about the lipstick and it when it became clear that he had interests other than business, that threw me off. However, it didn't surprise me that because I've actually, you know, dealt with my fair share of investment bankers and a few VCs, and I'm not throwing them all in the same bag. But you do have some above board ones and some who are, you know, party bros and, you know, the, you know, the ethics that go along with that, you know, that you might expect so now I mean a lot of those guys even when they deal with other guys they're pretty tough Mm -hmm. you know so things like I mean it's like I guess it kind of depends on your perspective because like you know when you bring up the thing about um, oh gosh what did you say about um, oh I want to hear you say the number I mean it's now revealed that that was actually this kind of power dynamic but I have to say I mean that, that you know I can see a douche VC or a douche investment banker you know basically you know telling someone who's looking for cash, man or woman, you know, of whatever race, you know, kind of manipulating the situation and getting them to like dance to their beat, you know, you know, say the number, you know, oh, you know, go cheaper, you know, cut this, you know, modify that. That stuff is pretty common in that world. But once you come to the end and then, you know, it's revealed that there are ulterior motives, then it kind of, you know, kind of, I guess retroactively colors a lot of that stuff. But on its face, a lot of that other stuff, I just want to say, at least from my perspective, is common douche uh, investment banker. uh, I don't want to say common. It is not uncommon in the investment banker world, the VC world. And I'll never get VC cash now. This is now on (laughs) record. Awesome. But, you know.
1: Well, you know, um, that's all true. But it's also just, like, the history of all of it. It just colors mm-hmm. everything once you bring in the nefarious ulterior element into it. Then you kind of look back on all that stuff and you're just kind of like, well, would you have done that to, if these were two young men? Would you have, like, taken them a little more seriously? Or would you have called or would you have said that them calling persistently to get an answer from them was not uh, not aggressive but assertive? Like, there's slight nuances to those words, but they they can be amplified into greater meaning
0: yeah, and so I mean, it was an unfortunate turn, but I like that they went there because i mean let's be honest, I mean, the history of Silicon Valley isn't riddled with at least publicly riddled with stories of female founders you know uh, blazing a path i mean I'm sure there have been a good number, but We don't know, you know, their stories, the ones who have done it, their stories aren't generally told. And I'm sure this kind of thing happened, you know, when they were trying to get money, you know, trying to work with, you know, various companies. So, yeah, I'm glad they went there. I'm just glad it wasn't that heavy handed because one of my pet peeves about, you know, television series films is when they kind of, hit, you know, try to hit you over the head with mess with a message. And you're sitting there like, okay, can we get back to the plot? I get the message. I prefer it done in this way where it's seamlessly woven in kind of in much the same way. I think that Mad Men uh, did it. It's seamlessly woven into the plot to kind of like, hey, yeah, this this is the kind of stuff that happened and happens. This is just part of the plot. We're not you know, this is not an after school special. We're not, you know, asking you to pull out a pen and a pad and take notes. But be aware, you know, the, this is some of the ugly stuff that happens. So on, you know, so on that note, I'm, I'm, and I also think it's incredibly realistic because, I mean, again, you know, I mean, can you name two female founders like that started a major tech company? No. You as, as a tech woman, you, I'm going to call you tech woman. Tech woman. You're a tech reporter.
1: No, like I can't. I really can't. And it's, it's not to say that they weren't there. Because, like, Hidden Figures proves to us that these women were there, and they were doing incredible and important work. Uh, so that's not to say that women like Donna or uh, Cameron weren't there. It's just that we don't know about them. And for, you know, better or for worse, probably... No, definitely not for better. So I think we're all poor not knowing their stories, because you've effectively rendered them invisible. Oh, I just remembered a geek woman founder of computer history grace hopper you know when it comes to coding she was one of the founding mothers of that she incredibly i mean but
0: did she found a company or no
1: she didn't found a company but in terms of just the history of technology and tech and Mm -hmm. uh contributions to computers and computer science grace hopper is is huge and actually if you look at um there is a grace hopper coding academy in new york that helps women uh, get into coding.
0: Well, I'm sorry. That answer won't be accepted on the test. (laughs) He's not a company founder, so you still do not get the secret... uh mcdonald's wearable uh with your no. <laughs> did, did we not talk about the mcdonald's wearable we should we should we man we dropped the ball we should talk uh we will maybe we'll talk about that next week the mcdonald's wearable that was recalled because it made the arms of children break out in a rash that was oh. a horrible event oh jeez. anyway so halton cat F- catch fire third season has begun it's off to a great start i think better in fact than when you know we keep bringing up mr robot i think mr robot has gotten off to a slow start, and some people have already abandoned the show. You know, some people feel like it's kind of, like, gone off the rails. I think the third season of Halt and Catch Fire is incredibly strong. I'm excited to see what kind of evil deeds, <laughs> uh, you know, our, our friend uh, Joe McMillan, which, come on, McMillan, antivirus software. This is amazing. This is great. Yeah. Like You know, Lee Pace. Lee Pace is just... He is so, he's so good. He's just, he's amazing. I mean. And you
1: know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I know Lee Pace from this old uh, quirky show uh, called Pushing Daisies. It's kind of a black comedy. Oh
0: yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's, I love that show. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah.
1: He just is a very meek. Pie maker.
0: I forgot, you know, I didn't make the connection because he is. He's so different on that show. I
1: mean, it's very hard to forget those eyebrows. Those are some strong eyebrows.
0: On fleek, eyebrows on fleek.
1: Yeah, his, his, his especially. But, you know, he's a very sweet and meek character in Pushing Daisies, but he is all dark and holy crap, this dude is slightly sociopathic, but incredibly charming in Colton and Catch Fire. Dude's got range.
0: Oh, and by the way, just speaking of his character, they also, in terms of like breaking boundaries, I think this is one of the few bisexual characters we, we've ever seen. Oh
1: yeah, on TV. Yeah, he right? definitely is, and he's he's so it's it's so well handled by the show because uh, not only do they do they deal with AIDS in the eighties in a very poignant way, uh, they basically they don't make a huge deal of it of him being bisexual. Or that being completely out of the, it's part of his character, but it doesn't define his character, which is a really fine line.
0: This show is amazing. You have to, you guys out there, check it out. Um, Season three is off to a great start. Um, Before I go, I just want to ask you, as a, I will call you once again, a tech woman.
1: Tech woman. That sounds like a Tech woman.
0: Yes. Um, Do you believe the performances of... uh, Mackenzie Davis and Carrie Bechet as the founders, like, like of the two, which if, you know, if you had to say, okay, if, if I told you, okay, one of these women are actually in real life, an actual tech founder, which one would you believe is the one?
1: Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I'm going to go with the woman who plays Donna. Okay. Because uh, she's. She just seems like she has a bigger and it might just be the way her character is written. She just seems that she has a bigger sense of responsibility and what's at stake. Like the bits where she's saying things like that violates our user agreement or, you know, she just seems to be completely on top of things. Whereas uh, Cameron and this is just true of her character for uh, in first season all the way up to third. She's a much more conceptual. Let me lock myself in a basement and write scribblings on the wall as I listen to music and eat pizza, that kind of thing, like mad genius type.
0: I share your opinion. I think um, Donna definitely seems more like a real geek to me. The other thing that's interesting about these two women um, as the founders is they're both attractive women. You know, in other words, sometimes I think there's like a stereotype, particularly for women Mm -hmm. in the tech world, that if you are truly smart, you are not that attractive. You're frumpy. You know. You're kind of uh, uh, whatever. Yes. You're just. You're not. Uh, you're not yeah. classically quoted, quote unquote classically beautiful. And both of these women are. You know. I think by any measure, fairly attractive in any setting. And so I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if you're in if you're a woman in the tech business and you kind of often meet. Uh, the challenges of being kind of dealt with for your looks first, mm-hmm. you know, by powerful men in business. You know, I, again, I, I would wonder if this is kind of like, you know, just a really great way to kind of like, watch these writers kind of like play out some of your struggles on screen, you know? Yeah, no,
1: it's, it's actually really nice that they're not, although, you know, if they were frumpy, I guess you could play that as well, not being taken seriously because you're a frumpy woman, or taken more sim- seriously because you're a frumpy woman. Like there, there's a way to do that as well in a really compelling way. If you really think about it, it what what you were saying, it reminds me of Marissa Mayer and a lot of the, you know, the attention she gets because she's, you know, by objective. Uh, observation, she's not a bad-looking lady. She's very well put together. She exudes femininity in certain ways. And, you know, she gets a lot of scrutiny because of that, on some level, like what she does and what she wears. It's, it's kind of crazy that that's kind of a metric that they throw at her, in terms of her yeah, performance.
0: So, yeah, I have to say, and this is touchy territory, but I have to say, I feel like Marissa Mayer was pounced on far quicker than any of her predecessors. Mm -hmm. Even the woman before her, I can't remember the name of the, she was an older woman um, who was heading up Yahoo. But um, I feel like people jumped on Marissa Mayer like lightning. And ironically, I think one, you know, I don't think I know, you know, one of the chief, um one of our chief critics was unfortunately another woman. I'm not going to like get into who that woman is. I know who it is. I just don't want to like go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, I I do think that, you know, the the challenge of being I guess less less than frumpy and having people judge you by your looks as you're trying to conduct, you know, serious business. I feel like she for sure like that was one of her challenges just to you know, to end off one thing that did stand out for me as I was watching this latest episode that didn't really hit me in season one and season two is this show is the model of the Bechdel test, meaning there are like a number of scenes where it's. There are only women on screen, particularly just, you know, to go back to the season premiere. They um, after they find out that the the douche VC just wants to hook up, they go find another firm. And one of the partners is a woman. And, you know, throughout that episode, I think it's part two of the premiere. They have like these interactions where it's the two female founders. And I don't know if it's if it's a the firm is a bank or a venture capital firm. But I'll just say it's a VC firm. And so the woman from the VC firm, they have like all these scenes and it's just like, wow, like you don't really see this a lot. And these aren't just women who are kind of referring to their boyfriends or to their husbands, which is what and that's the thing. This is the reason why it stood out to me, because usually you know, if the two women are in the bathroom, they're discussing their dating life mm-hmm. or, you know, what what the the husband or the boyfriend's going to do or if they kind of meet in the hallway. Oh, are we going to catch up with Bill? You know, like right. it was all about them. This was their world. And so if you guys out there know what the Bechdel test is, if you ever wanted to see, you know, like a plus marks for the Bechdel test, this the and Catch Fire definitely uh, meets uh, fits the bill.
1: Yeah. And, you know, just to just to say the Bechdel test isn't perfect by any measures, but I can't wait for it to be obsolete. And the fact that, you know, it grabs your attention as a show that actually does pass it is just, you know, it's another barometer for us to see just how far we have to go as as an industry and as a as a, you know, just in as a society to to even have women who have their own individual names. In a scene together, talking about something that is not related to a man. And that's all you have to do to pass the Bechdel test. And I think an absurd number of shows fail on on a regular basis.
0: So, Halt and Catch Fire, doing many things and doing them well. The season three premiere, amazing. Check it out. That will bring us to a close for this episode. You can subscribe to the Mars Magazine podcast on Stitcher, SoundCloud, of course, iTunes. Uh, and google play and uh, we're also on youtube and if you want to check us out on social media you can check us out at let's see the mars pod on facebook uh, on twitter you can check us out at mars magazine and uh, our website is at marsmagazine.com this has been adario strange with Fix on. and we will see you in the future